Welcome to the Modern Mommy Dog Podcast. I'm Dr. Whitney Caceres. I'm a full-time pediatrician and a full-time modern mom. I speak and write about equipping mamas to raise resilient, healthy children and to invest in their own social-emotional health along the way. Each week, we'll give you the practical tools you need to win at parenting without losing yourself. And welcome back to the Modern Mommy Doc podcast. Today I have Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, who is the author of a whole host of books that I love and keep on my shelves and talk to all my patients about day in and day out. And so we're just really super honored to have her here with us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to have this conversation with you because you know so much and I'm sure I'm going to learn some things too, but I just, I'm really excited to talk about the book or anything from any of the books. Yeah. So, so that people have an an awareness, I mean, you have a new book, The Bottom Line for Baby that just came out two days ago, which is all about kind of evidence-based looks into all these hot topics that people have lots of questions about. But then also you're the co-author of my two favorite books on the planet. The first is The Power of Showing Up, Dr. Dan Siegel. And then the other is The Whole Brain Child, which is probably what people are going to be the most familiar with. If you have not read that book, you are literally living in a cave in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) You need to (laughs) go get it because it is life-changing. I mean, The Whole Brain Child... I would love actually just to hear like the story of how that book even came to be. Oh my gosh. You know, I never planned on being a parenting author. <laughs> my back, you know, I, I planned to be a high school English teacher and I loved teaching. And I had my plan actually, in addition to teaching was to be a full-time stay-at-home mom. I wanted to do that since I was 10 years old. I mean, it was like what I wanted to do more than anything. And so but I loved teaching and I loved investing in people's lives. And and I felt like if I was doing that, that would make my life meaningful. So my plan was to wait. I got married at 22, but we waited six years so that we could afford for me to stay home. Like that was always part of the plan from the beginning. But my husband, I'm from California. My husband got a teaching job. He's an English professor in Southern California. So we, we moved back to California. We had been in college, other places where my family lived. And so I was thrilled to come back, but we could not afford to live in California on an English professor's salary. So he was like, you got to get a job. And I was like, wait, but that's not the plan. And he's like, but wait, that's the plan isn't working. So I was like, okay, fine. If I have to work, then I'm going to go get a PhD really fast so that I can be a professor because that will make me able to stay home with my kids more. And in the process of doing that, I came across, so I was studying child development theory and science and all this stuff related to child development. And I met Dan Siegel. I met him at a conference and he was, he was someone that changed my life because I was a really frustrated grad student who had all kinds of questions. Like if someone would say, look, the evidence-based approach for, you know, this personality disorder is this intervention. I would say, okay, fine. But why, what is the mechanism of change? How does that intervention change better than other interventions. And no one could answer those kinds of questions for me until Dan at a conference started talking about interpersonal neurobiology. And I was like, that is what I'm looking for is a framework that helps me really think about things in a bigger way. So I studied with Dan for 10 years. And while I was getting my PhD, I was also studying with Dan. And as I was learning about interpersonal neurobiology and things like this is what's happening in your brain when you're having a huge emotional experience. Just something like that. Just simple. What's happening in your nervous system? And I was like, oh my, and I had a little kid at home. And then I had, I kept having kids. I kept bringing my little kids to nurse in Dan's study group. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> he, was great. he was very supportive. But what was amazing is I was, I was thinking about this sitting in LA traffic on the way home. I was like, wait, how, this is, this is going to totally change how I think about parenting. And other parents need to know this and teachers need to know this. And so I was like, Dan, we need to write a book. And everybody wanted to write a book with Dan. And he's like, he was so nice. He was like, well, you can write up a proposal. And so I wrote it up and he loved it. And that's how the whole brain child came to be. And as soon as that book came out, people loved it. And it was so amazing. It was such a you know, surprise because I didn't know if people would want to know the science. But the questions I was getting the most 
you know, as I was out speaking or just doing parent, I was teaching little parenting groups in my community. Everybody wanted to know about discipline. So I was like, okay, we have to write the sort of brain-based approach to discipline. So we wrote no drama discipline. And that one is as one that people have really loved as well. So anyway, that's that's kind of how the whole brain child came to be. And I feel like that's sort of been the focus of my work is taking the science that parents typically don't have. I mean, it's not that they don't have access to it, but they don't. They don't, I mean, they don't go look up the journal articles. I sure certainly wouldn't if I this wasn't my work. And so I'd like to take the science and then make it really accessible and practical. Yeah. Okay. There's two things I love about that. One that you're like, I'm going to go get a PhD real quick. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. problem. I was so tired. Those years I was very tired, but my husband's an English professor. So he was home a lot. And so, and we have pictures of me talk about like not being present, but when we'd go to the zoo, which just is like 20 minutes from our house and my husband would be holding my son and they'd be looking at the elephants. And while my husband and son were engaged, I had like journal articles that I was pulling out of my diaper bag. And I was like sitting on the curb reading journal articles, but, and I was tired and I still struggle with this. You and I should talk about self-care for sure is that I really want to be present with my kids. I don't want to miss out. And so what that means is typically between the hours of after school and when they go upstairs to get ready for bed and go to sleep, they're older now. So I don't really get to do like a whole bedtime routine with them anymore. I start work sometimes at eight 30 or nine, you know, again, because I have a lot of work to do. So I stay up late sometimes just so I can be with them more. We talk a ton about self-care at modern mommy doc, but of course I am not like a self-care researcher or anything like that. It's more just based off what I found in being around all these moms that feel constantly conflicted. And I'm with you that third shift, right? Yep. You're do all your stuff in the day. You're trying to be with your kids in the evenings. And then now you have work to do. Right. What I have found for myself and then also for the other moms I, I work with who are really successful at this is about then being able to say, okay, for this period of time, yes, I need to put in those extra hours and grind it out so that I can get whatever passion project or goal I have accomplished. And then I need to be able to take a step back to say, okay, then what else do I have to cut out on the other end or be okay with not doing it all? Like classic for me is like laundry, like, you know, the house being clean. It's like when I'm in go mode, then this place is like a war zone. And If, if I can afford at that month to have someone else come in and clean it, then fantastic. Or otherwise, I just got to tell myself, hey, I'm doing like amazing things. And so who the you. heck cares? You know, like- <laughs> I think, you know, one of the ways because my husband's an academic and because I have kids in school, I think of I don't think of falls, you know, fall, winter, spring, summer, I think of like fall, spring and summer, we have three seasons, right? Because that's kind of how our lives are mapped out. And especially when my kids are younger, but even even now as well, I think we always have to kind of like, make a map of what that semester is going to be like. And then we know we have to keep revising our map. So, you know, depending on the kinds of activities your kids have or the kind of project you're involved in or goals we may have or things we want to focus on or things we want to move away from, where I feel like I'm constantly having to revise my map of what is our family plan. And, you know, what's what's been interesting is my kids are 14, 17 and 20 now. So I really just have two at home right now. And they typically have a ton of after school activities, which often means me going to games and things like that. So it's given me a little bit of time back. but normally they would be gone a lot. And because of the pandemic and they've been home and because I only have five years left until I'm an empty nester, I really cherish those times. And so I am letting other things go. They're home more, which means I have less work time, but that's, you know, it's, it's a gift. It really is not to say that every day is a magical journey where I'm like, this is the most lovely, like, no, there are days where I'm like, you smell, you're driving me crazy. You are so messy. I can't believe, you know, and, and like, I have a couple of interesting observations of child development that I did not learn in school. I learned from like being in the trenches. One is when they become teenagers, again, you're back to the newborn feeding schedule. You're, it's like two every two, three hours. They have <laughs> yeah. to, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, okay. So, you know, there's like, okay, my map is revising. I need to go to the grocery store a lot. And then the other thing is something I didn't know I'd have to kind of make a rule about, but I've made a rule that you can't operate a motor vehicle. You cannot like get your driver's license until you solidly have down brushing and flushing. 
until you can consistently brush your teeth and flush your to- flush the toilet without me asking you to, you are not allowed to operate a motor vehicle. I think that's a really good rule. So I'm having <laughs> to learn these things as I go along. <laughs> and actually, I think that idea of reworking your map or remapping, I mean, that actually comes back to your work that you talk about in The Whole Brain Child, because really it's about reevaluating and like coming back to how am I feeling? How is this going in our family? Like, like, like reconnecting with yourself about where am I emotionally so that you can say, is is this working for us? Is this working for me? I think that the theme across all of my books, and I don't know that I've ever thought about this. So who knows if it's going to come out articulate or not, but the theme across all of the books, the, the four I wrote with Dan, and then my new solo book, the bottom line for baby is really back to the idea that what we do as parents matters. That does not mean we have to be perfect. We can mess up all the time and we can talk about that and how we repair. But what we do matters a lot because the kinds of experiences we provide for our children, particularly relationally, I don't mean like, did they get piano lessons or, you know, was your house clean? Not, not that at all, but really the relational experiences you provide your children are the most important thing on who they become. And so I think for me, that is what I focus on is like, okay, so probably as a, as a doctor, you may give this advice. I remember this advice from my pediatrician or my kid's pediatrician, you know, don't count what they ate in a day, count what they ate in like a week. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, mm-hmm. is that yep. still, is that still yeah. good advice? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I kind of feel that way about even like these parental relational experiences too. Like you may have a really grumpy day or you may have a moment with your kid where you're really immature or, you know, and I certainly have those moments, but really what is the experience like for my kid right now over the last couple of weeks, over the last month, this semester, you know, whatever. And to think about is the relational experience I'm providing my kid what I feel good about? And if it's not, that is an opportunity not to go into a shame spiral, like to have compassion for ourselves and to be curious. Say, okay, I'm going to start with curiosity and say, why am I not able to be the parent I know I can be and the parent I want to be? What's getting in the way of that? And oftentimes it's really simple things like resentment. I'm getting, I'm, you know, resentment may be getting in the way because we feel like our co-parents not pitching in, or we feel like they're fighting against us and making things harder on us or things like sleep. We're not getting enough sleep. We, we literally can't have a well-integrated prefrontal cortex that allows us to pause and make decisions and have empathy and regulate our emotions if we're not getting enough sleep. Or maybe we're not getting enough time by ourselves. There's a lot of togetherness right now. So Mm -hmm. sometimes it's just a really simple fix. And if you're like, I'm going to carve out 20 minutes a day, that's just like whatever I want to do and or whatever, just something for ourselves. So I think that's a really important, like we go into a shame spiral where we're like, oh God, I'm such a bad parent. That's not helpful to be hard on ourselves like that. It's helpful to say, okay, what's getting in the way to move into that problem solving space. Yeah, it's all that mindful self-compassion. Yep. Curiosity, like that makes sense that that's happening for me. I bet other parents feel the same way as I do. Yeah. And then, okay, then what is the one thing maybe I can make a shift on so that I can be my best self? Not because I haven't been trying my hardest, but maybe there's a barrier that's been getting in my way. I, I 100% agree with you. Yeah. And I think that kind of goes back to what you talk about in The Power of Showing Up, Basically, the theory, the thesis is kids who form secure attachments with their caregivers lead happier and more fulfilling lives. And these bonds are formed when parents respond to the needs of kids by providing four S's. And in the first one or in the second one, you talk about being curious with our kids. Like, yeah. Like being really curious when, when we're trying to make them seen, would you mind going through the four S's for us? Or, you know, you don't have to name them, but like, just go through what the themes are. So that way parents are kind of aware. Well, I think I want to just give one tiny bit of background if you don't mind. And that's that, you know, a lot of parenting books are people's opinions and that can be really helpful, but there's a lot right now in our world that makes us feel not very secure about credible information right now. And I think that I want people to know, as I'm about to talk about that idea of secure attachment that you're talking about, two things. One, what I'm talking about is not the same thing as attachment parenting. 
And I think that's a really important distinction because even if you do all the things in the attachment parenting books, you can still have a child that's not securely attached to you. And if you do none of those things, you can still have a child who's securely attached to you. It's not about what you do. It's not about whether or not you co-sleep. It's not about whether or not you baby wear. It's really about a quality of presence with your child that I'll talk about a little bit more in depth in just a second. And the second thing is what I'm about to talk about is based on 50 years of cross-cultural research. So this is good quality information, longitudinal studies done at universities, in peer-reviewed journals. And so it's good quality information. And so really, here's the finding of that 50 years is that one of the best predictors for how well kids turn out on pretty much everything we measure them on is that they've had what's called secure attachment with at least one person. And secure attachment is really a mammal thing. It's not just humans. If you're a little bear cub in the forest and you hear a scary noise, you have a biological instinct because of this attachment system to run to your mama bear or your papa bear, whoever your attachment figure is, so that they will help you stay alive. And that's the purpose of attachment. So attachment allows us to, uh, it's a biological instinct, like I said, that is most activated when we are in distress. So the idea of this is when we are at our worst or when we're in pain or when we are afraid or, or we're having a hard time, that's when we most need connection and protection. And so I kind of like to think about it, especially right now because of the pandemic, because we have this sort of built-in resilience system and that is about connection. So the way that Dan and I like to talk about how do we provide secure attachment to our children, the best number one predictor based on the research of us providing secure attachment to our own children is not whether or not we've had secure attachment with our own parents, because 40% of people had a pattern of insecure attachment where either, very briefly, your parent didn't show up for you. You were kind of left alone to deal with your emotions, or your parent didn't do a good job soothing you because they were caught up in their own need, and they were really unpredictable, and you couldn't rely on them. Or worse, your parent was the source of your fear and the source of your distress and terror. So those are some kind of insecure patterns of attachment. But what we can do to cultivate secure attachment every day in our families and with our children is to provide the four S's. And I'll do those really fast. The first Take one your is time. Safe. Take your time. <laughs> <laughs> the first one is safe. Safe is obviously protecting our children from harm, but also when we become unpredictable, either we are kind of scary because we're yelling at someone because we're mad, not even our kids, or we're fighting with our co-parent, married or not, in aggressive ways that might be frightening for our child, or we get unpredictable and we kind of flip our lid and we yell at our kid and we don't handle things well. Times we become scarier or unpredictable that we make repairs with them. So we go to them and we say, oh gosh, I'm so sorry I yelled. I got really angry and I didn't handle it very well. I really wish I had done that differently. Will you forgive me? Sometimes I even add in a, can I have a do-over? You know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So the idea is not to be the source of, of harm or unsafety, but when we do to make the repair. this That one's pretty easy for most parents. The second one is seen, and that one's harder. Did you want to say something about safe? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask, can you talk to people about what flipping your lid is? Only because if they haven't read The Whole Brain Child, that's yeah. like critical that they understand that really quick, the brain biology behind that. Yeah. So really, the higher structures of our brain, are like our where our prefrontal cortex is, is the part of our brain that allows us to have empathy and insight and regulate our bodies and regulate our emotions and have good decision making and stop our impulses, you know, to pause and, and think before we act, those kinds of things. And the lower structures of our brain are where we do more kind of react kinds of things. And so, you know, in the whole brain child, we do the hand model. And the way I explain sort of the structure of this with kindergartners, and I think I can even do it over audio, is we'll see is I tell them to make a five. So if you'll take your hand and like make a five and then make a four. So you're kind of tucking your thumb in across your palm and then curl. And then I say, and then hug your thumb with your fingers. So you're basically making a fist, but your thumb is tucked inside. And so if you think about, you know, the ends of your fingers as your prefrontal cortex and the top, you know, the cortex top part of your brain, and then where your thumb is, it would be limbic. And then down in the palm and into your wrist would be your brainstem that when we have big emotions, in fact, the way I say it to the kindergartners is I say, down in the lower parts of your brain, this is where you have really big feelings and you just want to do something. And the higher part of your brain 
is where you are able to to pause and make calm, kind choices. But when your feelings get really big or you really want to do something, you can flip your lid. And then then the hand kind of goes, your fingers go straight up into the air and you say it's, and and that makes it hard to pause and make calm, kind choices. So that's kind of the mechanism of that. And there's a cartoon in The Whole Brain Child that you can read to your kids to explain it and do the hand model with them. And it's really helpful. Kids will even tell you, like my four-year-old would say, like I'd say, why did you hit your brother? And he would say, mama, I just flipped my lid. And so, and then he would accuse me, mama, you're about to flip your lid. You know, they, they would hold me accountable <laughs> too. My kids have done that too. Cause of course I'd like speak in this language all day long. Yeah. So my, my daughter will be like, you flipped your lid. And then I'll be like, I'm no, I'm not mad. I'm, I'm good. She's like, I know you better than that mom. <laughs> I know, they're, they're incredibly perceptive. I had a, a colleague of mine tell me that one of her clients told her that he knew his mom's tricks. He was like, I knew her, my mom, I know my mom's tricks because I found her parenting book. And it was the whole brain child. And he said, I know when she's trying to calm me down, she's trying to get to my upstairs brain. Like it's so cute when they get it and stuff. I love it. But really flipping our lid is really just where we lose it. You know, Mm -hmm. we're just not accessing our problem solving, you know, so like a time I I tell a story in no drama discipline about a time with my three-year-old who was kept hitting me and eventually stuck his tongue out at me. And in that moment, I got so mad that I told him if he stuck his tongue out one more time, I was going to rip it out of his mouth. So I threatened to remove a body part. Not a good (laughs) idea. And he immediately fell to the ground and was like, you didn't make a good choice. And I was like, you're right. But that's a flip your lid moment. And then when you do that, you just make the repair. I'm so sorry. That was scary when I used my voice like that. And I had a really scary look on my face. And I am so sorry. So you just make that repair when we're unsafe Mm -hmm. like that. Scene, I think, is the hardest one to do. If you get seen down, it's easy to do the next S, which is soothed. Seen is about looking at the mind behind the behavior. Now, obviously, we when we're talking about discipline, we talk about this a lot in No Drama Discipline. But seen in the moment is about not letting our fears as parents and not letting our anger and our own reactivity as parents win in that moment. Mm-hmm. It's about looking at your child, whatever they're experiencing, and tuning into what is happening inside of them. And meeting them there with empathy. Now, that does not mean we are permissive. It does not mean we don't have boundaries. So, and in fact, boundaries help our kids feel safe. So, I'll just give one of my favorite examples of this. My little guy, JP, was about four or five, and he was in the bathtub, and he did not want to get out. He was overtired, and he was just having a tantrum, a meltdown. He flipped his lid. And so, I said, it's time to get out of the bath. And he says, I'm not getting out of the bath. You know, he's yelling at me and splashing me and being aggressive. And so the first thing I have to do is, and this is, we could have a whole other thing just about no drama discipline. because Discipline is about teaching, which means so that he can learn the skills to become a self-disciplined person. So every discipline moment is is supposed to be about teaching. So the first question I have to ask is, am I ready to teach right now? Like if I'm mm-hmm. mad, I can't do it. And is he ready to learn right now? He was not ready to learn right now. So often in the name of discipline, the first thing we have to do is calm our child down. And the thing that does that quickest is empathy and connection, but again, not without boundaries. So let me give this example. So he says, I'm not getting out of the bathtub. And I say, it's time to get out. So at first I make sure I'm calm and I have a couple of tricks and things that help me stay calm. So I take a couple of really deep breaths and I'm ready. I'm ready for, I- I've told myself in my head, he is not going to be rational. He is not going to be easy. He's falling apart right now. What he needs, he needs help right now. So if mm-hmm. I can think of my child in that moment, when our kids in phys- are in physical pain, it's really easy to be like, oh, come here. You're having such a hard time. We have to understand that when, they're in a, when, they, are, when they flip their lids and they're having tantrums and they're acting crazy and often with bad behavior, the same part of the brain that is activated when they are in physical pain is also activated when they are in emotional pain and they have stress hormones running through their little tiny bodies. So they really do need our help in that moment. And there's so many other reasons to, to stay calm, including that they get practice then under, then, then they, they, hear, they get the experience of my mom can handle my big feelings and I can handle my big feelings too. So in that moment, I say, okay, so I'm calm. And it's going to be hard to stay calm, but I do it in this one moment, not the ripping your tongue out story, but in this moment, I stay calm and I say, I say, it's time to get out. And I say, you can either get out by yourself or I will gently lift you out of the bathtub. And that gently is to remind myself to not be rough with his body because I am, it's a frustrating experience. He says, I'm not getting out. And he slashes me again. 
I put my hands under his little armpits and I, I pick him up and move him out of the bathtub. And as I'm holding my boundary, removing him from the bathtub, I'm saying, you're so mad that bath time is over. You're really, really disappointed. You have to get out. Is that right? So that's seen. I'm not saying if you act like this, you're not going to get bad. Uh, you're not going to get any bedtime stories. And, it, and, and in fact, we're not even going to read stories tomorrow night either. Or if I said, you know, if I say, mm-hmm. um, Fine. If you're going to act that way, we're not going to go anywhere tomorrow. And I start just throwing consequences out that don't even really make sense. Or I get mad and yell at him. I told you you had to get out five minutes ago. I don't know why you're fussing about this. You know, that kind of thing. Right. That's the opposite of scene. And here's the deal. When you do the consequence thing, because of course that's like your, I feel like that's your brain's like go-to to be oh, like, totally. here's, here's, you know, no shows for a week, whatever. I feel like you can't, when you're so upset and you're not calm with your child, then you can't think of a consequence that's even rational. It's like exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then when we do that, our kids, even when they're four, know that's a stupid consequence. Right. And they know that what we're doing in that moment, if we're honest with ourselves, that moment is often about power and control mm-hmm. and about, I'm going to win and you're not going to act this way. And a lot of that is not because we're power and control freaks, but because, although I'm a little bit of a control freak, (laughs) I like being by my expectations, but it's more about if we're truly unpacking what that moment is about, it's often about fear that we have that we're not aware of, which is that if we let our kids act like this, they won't do well in the world. So we feel like we have to come in and be like, you're not going to act that way. And, and a lot of it's because we're, we're underneath that we're afraid that they're going to be spoiled brats that are not going to be treated well if they act that way in the world. Mm-hmm. But if we can put that aside, knowing that we're doing skill building all the time, knowing their brain is building. So, so in that moment, and, and honestly, so what I was going to say is if we throw out those random consequences or we're reactive and angry, they never think about their own role in the misbehavior. Mm-hmm. They blame you. You are mean. You are unfair. It was the brother's fault anyway. And so you love him more than me. And they, it, so actually it's counterproductive because then they don't take moments to say, yeah, I didn't handle that well. What can I do differently next time? So it, it, it's actually counterproductive to teaching. So that's a whole other episode. But anyway, back to the bathtub and back to scene. So what I'm doing is I'm saying no to the behavior, but I'm saying yes to what is happening inside of him and that I want to know him, that I understand him, that when he's at his worst, I'm here. Like all of those things are happening when I say, you're so mad. So his internal experience and my response are a match. So he's like, she gets me. Mm -hmm. I'm not alone in this big feeling. She's with me. And so as, so then I pull him out and then the, the third S is soothed. And this is the idea that we help our children. We comfort them and nurture them when they are at their worst. And so I wrap the towel around JP and I say, you're having such a hard time. And if you need to cry for a little while, I'm right here with you. So the soothing in that moment is not like, sure, I'll buy you another toy. It's really, I'm here with you while you have these big feelings, which is so liberating. It is so freeing to know that, you know, when your kid is having a tantrum because you're not letting them stay up with the big boys, or when your kid is pouting because you told them they couldn't get popcorn when you're already doing a treat to take them to the theater, you know, all of those moments when they're having those hard times and maybe they've lost it and they're, they're acting crazy and, and being disrespectful to you and all of that, you're going to address the behavior. But first we have to do the safe scene and soothed. And so in that moment, you can say, it's so disappointing to not get to stay up with the big boys. I know it feels really sad to be left out, doesn't it? And when you say that, they might even cry a little more or kick a little harder in, the, in their bed when you're trying to read stories to them. And that's okay because what they're doing is they're understanding that they can handle big feelings, that you can handle their big feelings, that when they need you the most, you're there for them. And so just like when you lift weights and you do reps, you get stronger. This is what's happening in the brain when we help our children, what we do call co-regulate, when we soothe them. I think the whole idea of self-soothing, particularly in early childhood, is so misunderstood. The way we learn to soothe ourselves is by having someone help us practice going from a falling apart, dysregulated state where we're scared, upset, stressed, whatever, back into a state of feeling calm and integrated in our brains. And the way we do that is by 
showing up in that moment. So I'll just do the fourth S really fast, which is secure, which is not like I feel secure about myself, which is definitely an outcome of secure attachment. But what it really is, is that when kids have these relational experiences we were talking about, it doesn't just impact their characters or their behavior. It actually changes the architecture of their brain. So when kids have repeated not perfect experiences of us really being present and showing up for them, helping them feel safe and seen and soothed, particularly when they're in distress, then their brain wires to know that if they have a need, we will show up for them. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean we don't get grumpy with them or those things, but really if they need us, they know without a shadow of a doubt we're going to show up. And then one other outcome that comes as a result of that fourth S of secure is that they learn how to do the four S's for themselves. Their brain wires from these reps to keep themselves safe, to see and understand themselves, to soothe themselves, and to be able to show up in other relationships and provide that secure attachment to their future children, to their mates, all of those things. My gosh, you guys, I hope you were taking notes in a journal, <laughs> seriously, or just go by the book, I guess you could, you could do it that way too. But this is the most important in my mind thing you can hear about parenting. I agree. Hi mama, guess what? Our book, The New Baby Blueprint is out in the world. We're so excited because we know it's going to help change the new motherhood experience. The bump said, they say motherhood doesn't come with a manual, but the new baby blueprint comes pretty close. You can find it wherever books are sold or check it out at modernmommydoc.com forward slash book. When I am in my office and I see kids and we, you know, the focus in medicine is always in pediatrics has been about like diet and exercise and you know, academic achievement and all those things and seatbelts. And those things are important, but they do not come close to this. And the thing is, all those things I think are easier to approach and like check off your list if these things are intact. If you have not mastered, because I think nobody ever mastered this 100%. But if this is your philosophy that you go into your parenting experience with and day to day, this is how you approach your kids or what you come back to over and over and over again. That is a thing that's going to help your kids be more resilient, be more satisfied, be more fulfilled, like you said in your book over time. I think that we have to remember too, that the way kids become resilient is not by overprotecting them. And it's not by being checked out. It's really this idea of a quality of, I mean, all of this is really about being present, being present in the moment, not distracted, not reacting, but really just being mindfully in the moment. And the way they learn to be resilient is by practicing dealing with difficult things with enough support. So that's where the the four S's come in. And I think I want to say too, like I'm a mental health professional and I've worked with a lot of kids. I also work in a school. And so I just support a lot of teachers and kids in that environment. And as a mom, as a clinician, as a school professional, as a wife, as a friend, there are lots of moments where I'm not sure what to do. And particularly, you know, when the problems get bigger in term or more riskier when your kids are teenagers, you know, teenagers do risky things. They're biologically programmed to do that. That's another episode too. But in those moments when I'm like, gosh, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm feeling afraid or I'm feeling really angry or I'm feeling like I can't think of anything. You know, like there are all those moments. The four S's are my North Star. They are always the right answer with my spouse, with my best friend, with my sister, with my kids, with my clients, with the teachers I work with. That is always the key. And it's not just because it feels good. It's not just because it's, it works, because it does work faster than anything else is when you are calm and you show up with empathy in, a, in the moment, your child calms down faster than most anything else, unless you're shoving a screen in their face and distracting them from their feelings, which does not make them resilient. Then there's so much like all the time, like not knowing what to do. It's so nice to have like this North Star. And I think the other thing that's super important to know too, is that as parents, this is a simple idea. So if I go, okay, look, the four S's, and by the way, great if you buy the book, but if you don't want to buy the book, then, and it's also in audio form, and Dan and I read all of our own books, which is really great. If you go to my website, which is tinabryson.com, there, there is a PDF of the refrigerator sheet. Dan and I always do a refrigerator sheet where we basically write out the main points from the whole book. So 
There's a sheet on my website, free for you, that basically lists the four S's and the practical strategies for how to implement them that you're welcome to like pin up on your refrigerator to help you remember. And, and keeping in mind reps that this might seem foreign to you as you're listening to this. You might be feeling like, God, I haven't been parenting this way. And is it too late? No, the research is super hopeful. 50 years of research tells you you should have hope because it is never too late. And even if you're listening and you have adult children, it's never too late. You can even go to your child and say, I learned something today and I want to try and do things a little bit different. And I was thinking about that time last week and it's still bothering me that I said that to you. Will you, will you forgive me? And so you can always go back and make a repair about something that's staying heavy with you. And what's so amazing about this is you can start now saying, okay, today, I'm going to make repairs when I mess up and I'm going to really focus on my child's feelings and really tune into those with empathy and comfort them. And then once they're comforted, that's when I'll start addressing the behavior and doing all the discipline stuff. Right. So, cause I know some of you are thinking, yeah, but when do you do that? Once they're calm, they're ready to learn. And that's when you address the behavior and have a conversation about it. What can you do differently next time? How can you make things right with your brother? So you do a lot of that reflective dialogue. But you can always start now and our children's brains are wired from our experiences. So once you start providing new experiences, their brains start changing. And I think this is so key because it's hard at the beginning, even though it's a simple idea, it can be really hard to do that because we can get reactive, right? And we've been parenting a certain way, but know that your brain is plastic too. And so once you start doing this, you'll find it easier and easier and easier. And you'll see that it can be very effective as well. And then I just have one other thing about this. This is so important, I think. Even though it's a simple idea, it can be hard to do. That means all of us, I'm talking to myself too, that I want to say to you parents, you matter too. You do, you matter. And your children need a happy, not all the time, but a happy, regulated parent as much as you can muster because it can take a lot of emotional energy to do it. And I, I, I want to say too that when you put in the, the energy to do it, it pays off. It's like putting deposits in a bank. My kids are not perfect, but my kids have not fought with each other in years. They are so pleasant and easy to be with. And I think it's because, and they're teenage boys, right? They should be really not very fun to be with. <laughs> and I don't, I, I don't take all the credit for that. Some of that may be, you know, the other adults in their lives and genetics and all those things too. But I think that when we do this with our children, what we are doing is we're developing their brains so that they can start doing it for themselves. They become self-disciplined people. Okay, so back to what I was saying that I think is the most important part. You matter to parents, which means who shows up for you? We've got to make sure that people are showing up for us. Who in your life helps you feel safe and seen and soothed? Mm -hmm. We've got to have those people. And we have to show up for ourselves. We have to make sure that we're doing that for ourselves. And that is so key because if we don't do that, it's going to be really hard to do it for our kids. And it might seem foreign to us because maybe we didn't have parents who provided us with those four S's. And so it might feel really weird to us, but we can do it. We can really start practicing it and it will become who we are. Absolutely. I mean, I think I feel like I learned this the hard way, you know, because my oldest daughter was, was so colicky. She had such a rough time and continues to be like a well of need that will never, ever run dry. <laughs> and is an amazing kid who will like solve world hunger. I mean, she's awesome, but she has a lot of emotional stuff that happens all the time that I have to deal with. And so in yeah. order to do that, I have to take care of myself. And yeah. Not in a way that is like, I go to the spa for five days. I mean, in a way that is like, I have, like you're saying, I have a person, a therapist that I go talk to who yep. helps me continue to learn how to soothe myself when I get yep. dysregulated. Yep. I have friends that I know I can count on who get it, you know, who get me and who get my child and can be supportive. So yeah, I really think we can't do it well if we're not taking care of ourselves yeah. and that we'll find ourselves flipping our own lids way, way more if we 
as Carla Nomberg in her book, How to Stop Losing Your Bleep with Your Kids, right? Says, yeah. if we're not dampening our triggers, if we're not kind of taking care of the basics of like you're saying, exercise and, and sleep and yeah. making sure that we have just some brain space that's just kept blank for a little while where we're just yeah. doing you know, 20 minutes for ourselves. Those are like the basics. Yeah. And then the others are making sure that we have some experiences where we're with our kids that are genuinely enjoyable, right? That not every single thing we do with our kid is about like completing a task or getting no. them from point A to point B. That in your book, even you talk about like just making space time-wise and emotionally for our kids to have those deeper conversations yeah. and have them feel attached to us. So, And those, mo- those shared moments of joy. I mean, I think as a therapist, so many times I've had parents in my office that were so exhausted and overwhelmed that they just never really had moments of joy with their children. And mm-hmm. that's where we started. We Well, we started with what do you need in order to be rested enough that it's safe for you to drive your kids around town, right? We started mm-hmm. with the basics. But I think, you know, people are like, I don't have time. And particularly now when kids are home more and we don't have as much childcare or those kinds of things, like, you know, we're like, oh my gosh, I'm with my kid all the time. Like, is it, and so it's really not, I'm not talking about quantity of time. I'm talking about a quality of presence. And if you're just, even if you're just spending 20 or 30 minutes with your kids twice a day, but in that time, you are really connected. You're not on your devices. You're following their lead. You are laughing together. I mean, it can be really simple, even watching like goats screaming on YouTube together where you're laughing. (laughs) It doesn't have to be something you plan out. Like it's more about being than doing. So I'd much rather a parent, you know, do something silly with tape and a piece of construction paper on the floor where they're rolling around in it than to set up a beautiful craft table where it can construct, you know, like I thought I would be that kind of mom. And I was like, here's a Sharpie and a paper. Just don't draw on the wall. You know, I just didn't. It's it's a lot more, you know, I, I had the Pinterest version in in my head and it's like, why do I have poop on my elbow? You know, it just wasn't the Pinterest kind Mm -hmm. of thing. Mm -hmm. I think what you're talking about there, just in terms of having supports, but I, what I loved what you said just about 20 minutes. Like if you discipline yourself to give yourself 20 minutes of just personal, you know, space, whether that's like locking yourself in your bathroom with a magazine, you know, or whatever it is, making sure, of course, your children are safe. That is super important. And then just really, do you have shared moments of joy with your children every day or most days? You know, that that's so key is to really I think one of the, my parents were 19 when I was born. I mean, barely 19. And my mom, I don't know how she did it. I mean, she was the second of eight children. So I think she had a lot of practice with kids, but she delighted in me and I, she still does. It's, you know, it's, that's the most important thing I think she ever did as, as my mom is to really like, you know, she delights in me. And I know that if I have a need, I just, if I, if I texted my mom and said, I need you to find a squirrel and paint it blue and put it on a saddle on an opossum and be over here in eight minutes, she'd be like on it. She wouldn't even, you know, like, you know what I mean? So that's, I think finding joys blow, you know, it doesn't have, you don't have to be creative, blow up a balloon, play, keep it up with your kids for five minutes, turn on music and you know, I mean, go outside and have a food fight in the grass, you know, whatever, just eat popsicles under the table in the living, you know, in the, in the kitchen table, you know, just, it it doesn't even have to be creative or silly, even just watching videos together and laughing. Those are so important because when we laugh and we have joy together, it actually is incredibly stress relieving for us and our children. So important. I love it. And I think totally hit the nail on the head. The last thing that I want to tell listeners is just about that concept that you talked about, about fear, about really in those moments that it's about we're fearful our kids will end up to be complete jerks. I mean, like, and not functional in the world. And we're projecting out to like 35 years from now, what monster am I creating? Honestly, if I don't do it, that's like hardcore way. And I think, so recognizing that incredibly important And I think actually your new book, The Bottom Line for Baby, it also kind of speaks to like all these fears that people have about if I don't do X, Y, Z exactly right, what is going to happen to my kid? And so I want to just encourage people, if you guys do look at the book, it's awesome because it goes through like 60 different topics, which we will not regurgitate now. You can go look. (laughs) My favorite are on, of course, discipline. 
postpartum depression and sensitive babies for my own personal reasons. Cause yes. I like to, I love reading about those types of things, but there's a whole host of things. I mean, it's like soup to nuts on it, but really we're talking about before we came on, Tina and I, like the main message in it was, yes, there are some evidence-based guidance on each of these topics, but in the end, what matters most that you're present with your child and that you learn about yeah. regulating your emotions and helping your kids build the skills to regulate their own over time. Yeah. I think, you know, I, one of the things I love to do is to help us all move from fear-based parenting. And I think, you know, somehow we get, we've been convinced that like, oh my gosh, if I let my kids sleep in the bed with me tonight, they'll never sleep on their own. And those are just lies. That's just not true. And so a lot of the things that we do that, that make things really hard on us and our children as parents are based in our fears. And they're not even things that we need to even have the battles with. I wrote the bottom line for baby because there's a lot of fear-based decision-making and it was the book I most needed as a new mom because I would gather information. I'd hear advice, solicited, unsolicited, and it was all in conflict with each other. So I wanted to take 60 plus topics on that are the things that we get the most competing advice on. And some of them are super controversial, like, or people are, have massive judgment about like breastfeeding and co-sleeping and sleep training and vaccines and circumcision and all the ones that people really have strong feelings about and little things like, can you put DEET on your baby? What about sunscreen? Can I pierce my baby's ears? You know, what about allergens and, and, and what's baby led weaning? And is that okay? You know, all those questions and to really, the way I've done it is alphabetical. So blurry eyed parents can in a few minutes get empowered with the latest scientific knowledge. And then what I, what I really tried to do. Okay. So the way the book is laid out is, so you look at germs, does my, do I need to, you know, clean up my kid's pacifier every time they drop it with like soap and water, or can I lick it clean? You know, those kinds of things. How big are germs? Is that a big deal? Because, you know, you're, maybe your mother-in-law is like, you know, you need to disinfect your floor, you know, whatever. Don't put them in the sandbox, you know, whatever. And you can flip to germs. And the way that each entry is laid out, like I'll give this example in germs, is perspective one, like babies, it's great for babies to get dirty and it's fine for them to be around a bunch of germs. The other one is no babies have a immature immune system and we really have to sanitize their environment. So I give the two main perspectives. Then I say the section is what the science says. So I give the science. And in this case, it's basically tells about what we know about all of that. And then in the, the third section is called the bottom line. And in the bottom line, I say babies who are exposed to a lot of germs and dirt and, you know, their parents lick their pacifiers clean, have lower rates of eczema and allergens, and it's really good for their immune system for them to not be over sanitized. And then in about a third of the entries, I give a personal note because I worked really hard to be objective about what I was reporting from the science. And so I have opinions though, and I didn't always follow the science. So sometimes I say, look, I didn't do this and here's why, or I tried to do this, but it didn't work for my family. My hope in this book is that parents will be empowered by information, which you can use to fend off people's advice if you want to. You can like be like, read the chapter on G, grandma, on germs, and then be really empowered to be confident about our decisions as parents and to do what works best for our babies for ourselves and our families. And this is going to be really kind of shocking for me to say this for some of you. In the end, what you just said is what matters most. So the bottom line of the bottom line is the four S's. It really is about being there and, and having secure attachment with your baby. And I'll tell you the truth that what I really believe based on all the science and my experience is that no matter what you decide, even about the most controversial big things, whether or not you breastfeed, whether or not you co-sleep, whether or not you sleep train, whether or not you vaccinate, whether or not you circumcise, and on and on and on, those things don't have as big of an impact on who our children become as we feel like they do when we're making those decisions. I know that feels, and they, they matter. Of course, all the decisions matter. I don't mean to minimize that. And I'm, I'm a big fan of breastfeeding in case someone's thinking they're going to send me some mean emails later. I breastfed for nearly nine and a half years across my three boys. I'm a fan of extended breastfeeding up until age three, which is the research supports as well. I think that I had a best friend who, who we grew up together. We even shared a wedding dress and went to college together. We were like close, 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 had our first babies within a week of each other. And she and I did everything completely opposite. 
and her kid is awesome and my kid is awesome. Neither of them are perfect, but our kids are awesome. So I guess what I'm saying is in those moments, it feels all these decisions we make about, should I let my kids sleep in my bed with me or not? Or, you know, should I, you know, is it okay to give up breastfeeding? Or is it okay if I pick my baby up all the time? Like all those questions, you know, they're important. They matter, but they are not there are life and death things, watching kids around water, putting them in car seats, those kinds of things. But most of the things that feel like they are the most important decision we make that we just toil over, it's your relationship with your child that is the biggest determinant. So I want to take the pressure off, take the pressure off, let it fall off because, and this will be the last thing I'll say about this because I know we've had so much fun talking, we've gone long is that there are a lot of ways to be a really great parent. So if you decide one way and your friend who's parenting decides another way, that doesn't mean one's a better parent than the other. You know, there's no reason we should be judging each other. There are lots and lots of ways to be a great parent. And the the most important one is that what your child needs most from you is you. A freaking men. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. Tina. Thank you so, so much for doing this. People, I like, seriously, go get a binder and just write down every single thing she said. <laughs> go good. Will you remind people again where to find you on social and on the internet? My website is tinabryson.com and that's B-R-Y-S-O-N. And you can find links to all my social media there. The place I'm posting the most these days, and I'm making a lot of like little short videos for parents right now in the pandemic, like... My favorite one that I've done since the pandemic started is about how to use safety-based language instead of threat-based language with our kids when we're explaining things, even our teenagers. And all of that is on my website, on my blog, but it's Instagram's where I'm posting a lot of stuff right now. And my Instagram handle is Tina Payne Bryson. Awesome. All right, you guys, take care. Bye-bye. You guys, it is here. Our new programs have landed. They're at modernmommydoc.com. We're so excited about them because we've just been thinking about how could we provide more accessible, digestible information for mamas out there who really want to elevate their motherhood experience. And so we have four programs now at Modern Mommy Doc. The first is taking care of you and your newborn which is all about helping to prepare yourself or taking care of yourself and your baby in the first month of life. And then parenting in partnership, which is about how to work as a team with a co-parent to really make sure that you are on the same page and working strongly together and making the best possible environment for your kiddos to thrive. The third is the Mama Reset at home retreat, which is really cool. It is a collection of experts who are there to provide you with a chance to reconnect with yourself, to recenter, to think about what you want and your motherhood experience, but then also to give you some practical applications within the actual time we have together. So opportunities for journaling, for gentle movement, for learning all about nutrition, really hands-on practical applications, but then also a chance to have some mindfulness there in the moment. And then finally, navigating and regulating children's big emotions, which we know is a big one for mamas. We're all still working on that one. And so we are providing in that program a lot of extra help about how to take care of our own emotions as we parent, and then also how to meet kids where they are and use really evidence-based strategies to help our kids understand their emotions, to name their emotions, and then also when their emotions just get too big for them, how to help to calm their nervous systems and how to help them become the 35-year-olds that we hope that they will be. I hope you guys will join me. You can go to modernmommydoc.com for more information. 